Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Patrick Clausen, a member of the Middle East Quarterly's Board of Editors and Director of Research at the Washington Institute for Near Eastern Policy, join us to discuss how fares Iran's economy after Trump. Dr. Clausen will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type out your question. Now, with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Dr. Patrick Clausen. Thank you. It's a interesting day for us to be talking about Iran since in the Jewish calendar today is Purim, which is uh, the book of Esther is set in Iran. Um, anyway, the reality is that uh, no one in Iran and no one around the world actually expects there to be a great deal of economic impact from the uh, end of the Trump administration because there's a much greater awareness than when the nuclear deal was done uh, that the sanctions on the nuclear deal are, are only one part of a broader set of economic sanctions that the United States has on Iran. And that broader set of sanctions, which cover things like terrorism and uh, human rights abuses, is going to remain. It's not going to change. And furthermore, there is no prospect that the United States is going to permit direct U.S.-Iranian trade, except in humanitarian items like uh, medicines and food. And so the reality is that, that there will be, continue to be, uh, tough U.S. sanctions on U.S. firms doing business with Iran, even if the United States were to back off some on the sanctions that it applies on third country firms dealing with Iran. And the U.S. sanctions are almost certainly going to continue to include a lot of sanctions on the use of the United States dollar. And that is going to make international financial institutions very nervous because the uh, U.S. government has now for more than a decade taken a very vigorous approach towards enforcing its financial sanctions. This is very different than what the U.S. did for many, many years. Uh, I remember one point in about 15 years ago, the Treasury Department saying that the majority of their sanctions enforcement actions were about tourists bringing back Cuban cigars. Uh, now, the Treasury Department collected billions and billions of dollars in fines on major banks, collected $9 billion in fines on one French-owned bank. And this has made financial institutions very nervous uh, that they could get caught up in um, U.S. regulations. And furthermore, it's come at a time when there's been a real see change in attitudes about what are the responsibilities of banks for knowing who their customers are. There have been a number of high profile scandals about uh, banks helping customers evade taxes, for instance, that have led banks to uh, decide they really have to know a lot about their customers. And there are a lot more regulations. And they, that makes banks look at the Iranian market and say, well, why don't we want to get involved here? It's not that big a market. We could face 
enormous problems with the United States government if we do this. And the Iranians aren't interested in cooperating with these international banking rules. Uh, I could go through a list of, of international banking regulations that have been adopted since the 2008 crisis that the Iranians just are trying to ignore. <clears throat> Furthermore, if we go back five, six years ago, when the nuclear deal was being negotiated, uh, I at the time wrote a book about how the Iranians are going to react to the nuclear deal, in, in which I warned that, um, look, the globe, globalization has meant that if you try and isolate yourself from the global system, it doesn't work, it just doesn't work. And that you're not going to find companies, especially not banks, that are going to be prepared to say, to heck with US rules, we'll deal with the Iranians. And I remember the attitude of the senior officials in the State Department was to say, ah, oh, Patrick, you're just wrong on this. And Secretary Kerry, uh, after the nuclear deal was done, he actually went around the world trying to persuade bankers that they should get involved in business with Iran. And they sat there in stony silence at best, or just telling him, no. There are not isolated little corners of the world market that you can deal with as easily today as there were 20 or 30 years ago. And so with the Iranians cut out of this global chain, that's not, they're not gonna be able to reintegrate themselves in the same way. The result is that the US sanctions have a dramatic impact on the Iranian economy. Added to that, global energy markets have changed a lot in the last 10 years as the United States has become such a so much larger producer of oil and gas. And whereas for decades, there was a lot of concern, especially in East Asia, about energy supplies. Now they're frankly quite relaxed. And you're just not going to see um, special deals done with Iran because it's a major oil producer the way they were 20 or 30 years ago. And so the ample energy supplies that has really meant there aren't global strategic concerns about energy availability has worked to Iran's disadvantage. So I'm painting a picture in which there's not really that much which is going to change uh, under Biden, that firms, especially banks, will be afraid that uh, they could get caught up in US sanctions. And furthermore, they're going to worry that the pendulum of, of US policy towards Iran having swung one way and then swung another will swing back. And that the what firm wants to devote a lot of energy and money into building up a presence in the Iranian market and then find that the rug gets yanked out from under them once again. Add to this, Iran's business culture has become one of deception and lack of transparency so that companies can't be sure who it is they're dealing with. And the Revolutionary Guards have 
cut themselves into the most profitable deals in Iran. Uh, so there's a good chance that if you're a foreign company dealing with your Iranian counterpart, that your Iranian counterpart has had to cut a deal with the Revolutionary Guards. Uh, and that could put you in trouble and not just with the United States, also with the Europeans. So that's one big piece of news. Don't expect that much change post-Trump. The other big piece of news is that Iran's economy is not like that of Iraq or Saudi Arabia. Iraq and Saudi Arabia basically produce oil. And then other than that, they've got services. But it's really the oil revenues which drive government spending and government spending which drives the rest of the economy. And Iraq and Saudi Arabia export oil and that's about it. This is not that one that, by the way, was true of Iran for a long time. I mean, you go back 30 years ago, that's a pretty good description of what was going on in Iran. It's not today. In fact, most of Iran's exports are non-oil products. Most of Iran's government revenue doesn't comes from sources other than oil. And <clears throat> Iran has got a robust economy. We're talking about a country that because of the effect of US sanctions, the production of the uh, vehicles is down to only 900,000 a year. Used to be 1.5 million. And Iran exports steel. It exports a wide range of industrial commodities. Well, Iran is going through a process of economic development rather similar to what some other OPEC countries like Indonesia and Malaysia went through some decades ago. And is Iran's transitioning away from being an oil producing uh, country with a few other things on the side to being uh, a pretty diverse economy in which oil is a big industry, but by no means um, the centerpiece of the country's economy. Iran's supreme leader talks as for years about a resistance economy. And his vision of that resistance economy is kind of like autarky or autarky plus exports, uh, but which is not what's happening. But one element of the resistance economy which is happening is that the country is becoming much less dependent upon, uh, upon oil. And as a result, the impact of the US sanctions on Iran's, which have concentrated very much on Iran's oil and gas industry, uh, were rather more limited than what Washington expected. And Washington had to branch out to target a lot of other industries like the steel industry. Uh, and um, in doing this, the US sanctions have become pretty much pretty comprehensive sanctions and not targeted sanctions. Uh, and um, that reduces support internationally for US sanctions. It's one thing if the US government comes along and says, look, don't buy Iranian oil <clears throat> because the Iranian oil revenues go directly to the government and that then funds Iran's support for terrorism. It's another thing when the US government comes along and says, don't buy Iranian steel because the Iranian steel company is owned by a company which is owned by a company that's owned by a company that gives money to Hezbollah. Mm. Yeah, that argument doesn't work so well. Uh, so the reality is that Iran's a middle-income country. And 
will remain a middle-income country, even under heavy sanctions from the United States. Uh, Iranians are world-class complainers, and we will hear lots from Iranians uh, uh, about how much they are suffering. And it's certainly true that Iran's a much worse place than it would be if it, had, it wasn't subject to sanctions and it wasn't, didn't have hostile relations with the United States and adopted some sensible economic reforms because they continue to refuse to adopt sensible reforms. Uh, the banking reform bill, for instance, has been hung up for about 10 years. Uh, and uh, as a result, Iran's banking system doesn't work very well, even setting aside its problems with the in its relations with the international financial system. Uh, had the Iranians adopted a better set of policies and had better relations with the United States in particular and the world in general, uh, Iran, Iran today would be a country fully as rich as that of Spain and possibly quite a bit more. Uh, and so Iranians have every reason to feel that the, the revolution has been an economic failure in that it really took close to 30 years to climb back to the revolution's level of income. Uh, there was the war uh, and then the difficult period of the war reconstruction. And then not long after Iran was in this boom, bringing it back to where it had been in 1979, then the nuclear issue exploded, pardon the pun. And uh, ever since then, Iran, continuing my metaphor, has been radioactive. And so um, incomes have, have declined. Uh, so this is a tragedy for the Iranian people. Does this mean that they're gonna rise up in protests? Probably not. Uh, the protest, the history of protests in the region has, has not been a good one. And many Iranians who are bitter opponents of the Islamic Republic uh, will tell you that they don't want to risk having a situation like that happened in Egypt, where the protests just led to um, some chaos and then a return of the old order, much less what happened in uh, Libya or in Syria, uh, where there was a breakdown of uh, all public order and the, the situation is dreadful for people in Syria in particular, uh, mass slaughter. So the people are scared and meanwhile, the regime, after many years of being afraid of getting into confrontation with people, has in the last few years decided that it's prepared to kill in order to stay in power. And so their attitude towards protesters has changed sharply. And now the use of deadly force is something that they turn to quickly uh, when faced with protests. So the popular reaction to the economic privation has been to complain loudly, um, protest about specific local issues and specific local figures. Um, but in general, people have decided they just have to get on with their life. And an awful lot of Iranians have decided, the Iranian baby boom that took place after the revolution, uh, those people are now in their 30s, late 30s, many cases. And they've just decided that, all right, life is going to be much more limited, disappointing than I thought. Uh, and they're not as likely to go out in the streets as when Iran's population was dominated by young people. Because today, uh, the Iranians are the second oldest average age in the Middle East, uh, um, 
right smack tied with Israel. Uh, so it's not a country of young people. It's a country of people who are aging. And if we look out 20 years, Iran's going to have quite a, a large population of people of retirement age uh, and relatively few youth. That's the long run. The short run, as I said, not a whole lot of change and not a whole lot of expectation of change. The question about improving US-Iran relations now is much more about reducing geopolitical tension and tensions like the ones that led to that airstrike yesterday by the United States. It's no longer being driven by the hopes that better US-Iran relations will lead to good times economically in Iran. With that, let me open it up for questions. All right, thank you so much for that. So the first question we have then is a little background. Can you give us the GDP per capita of Iran over the last 10 to 15 years? Well, the problem is that Iran's got such a distorted economy with prices that are really weird that it's hard to make a good comparison between the United States and Iran. Now, there are international efforts that you call purchasing power parity, which tries to compare countries not on the basis of their official exchange rates, which in Iran's case was bounced. I mean, there's an official exchange rate, there's a free market rate, and uh, they differ dramatically. But instead, by comparing what people can buy with their money. And if you do that, then uh, Iranian per capita income uh, comes out now at a, somewhere around uh, $5,000 per person. Um, some calculations higher, some, but, and um, the per capita income at the time of the 1979 revolution uh, was about the same, adjusting for inflation. Uh, and then it slid downwards, bottoming out around the time of the end of the Iran-Iraq War in 1989 at roughly half that level. And then climbed back up slowly at first. Uh, and then there was a boom uh, for a while uh, until you hit the, uh, the high point um, when just before the crisis caused by uh, Iran's nuclear program being exposed in 2012, 2013. And most of the last decade, that per capita income uh, has been on the decline. Thank you. And are there any other countries, banks like Russia or China that are willing to deal with Iran? And also, do you think Iran would resort to using cryptocurrencies to circumvent banking restrictions? So the expectation of then Secretary of State Kerry, uh, when the nuclear deal was done, was that there would be banks that would want to get in. You know, and maybe not major banks, but smaller banks and some smaller countries, and as well as Russian and Chinese banks. An interesting situation is that uh, Chinese government-owned banks refuse to deal with Iran. Even when Beijing tells them that they should because those banks don't want to put at risk their access to the US market. So what we have seen is that the Iranians have great difficulties gaining access to money which they theoretically have. A few months ago, the International Monetary Fund in its regular update 
about countries' foreign exchange reserve position, slashed its estimate of Iran's foreign exchange reserves from $112 billion to $8 billion. And they put a little footnote and they said, money to which a country does not really have access should not be considered part of its foreign exchange reserves. That's a good indicator of what we're talking about here. Iran's got over $100 billion to which it doesn't have access because it can't find ways to gain access to those banks. Cryptocurrencies are great if you're a drug dealer and you're trying to hide your, your drug sales. They're really pretty good for whole bunches of criminals and people who are trying to cover up what they've stolen. But running a modern economy on a cryptocurrency, people were not there yet. And so while the Iranians do vigorously try to make use of cryptocurrencies, we say they have limited acceptance for large quantities of trade. So given the background you've described, what is your assessment of the value of sanctions as leverage in the negotiations over the revision of the JCPOA? Well, the sanctions have certainly gotten the attention of the Iranian authorities and have persuaded them that the United States uh, can inflict real harm on them. The difficulty that we face is that because of the experience with uh, the JCPOA, uh, the Iranian regime is unpersuaded that the United States is ever going to lift the sanctions. So the sanctions, as a punitive measure, don't really have much impact as a leverage if the Iranians think that they're going to stay there forever anyway. So the Iranian attitude, uh, in fact, the attitude of the man on the street is that, well, the United States may promise to lift the sanctions, but they actually won't. Uh, and I have to say, you know what, that's largely true. Um, and so it's quite difficult to get leverage with these sanctions. What you can do is inflict punishment and make it harder for Iran to carry out its policies. But persuading the Iranians to return. Now, the one thing that Iran thinks may happen, and they're right, is that the United States might get out of the way of Iran selling oil to uh, third countries. And the US might adopt a number of technical tweaks to its uh, financial sanctions to make it possible for Iran to get access to that $100 billion we're talking about. That's a possibility. Uh, and that seems to matter a whole lot to the Supreme Leader, who is the guy who decides these things. So we do have some, we do have leverage. I don't want to exaggerate uh, uh, my earlier comments. We do have leverage because Khamenei thinks that it, it would be possible uh, to be to resume open oil sales and not just the clandestine transfers and the open open seas from one ship to another. Um, but the leverage is nowhere near as great uh, as we once had. And are there any kind of sanctions that would actually help or make a difference? Well, look, the sanctions make a difference. I won't say they don't make any, but um, punitive measure for one thing. Um, but um, sanctions are much more effective if they are combined with diplomacy and with the use of military force. And if they're put together in a package where they're one element in the package, they can accomplish a lot more than if they're the only 
instrument that you're using. And uh, the Trump administration uh, was faced a real problem because it was quite apparent to Tehran that Trump wasn't going to offer them incentives and he wasn't going to use military force unless absolutely, absolutely compelled to. So that left just sanctions. And if it was just sanctions, not sanctions plus diplomacy and sanctions plus a threat of military force and sanctions plus some incentives, we didn't get very much for it. The challenge for the Biden administration is to show that they, they see sanctions as part of a, a whole package. And part of the reason for the military strike in, uh, yesterday was to say that, well, well, we don't want to make the military the main element in our main instrument that we use, but it is an instrument that we are prepared to use. Of course, thank you. Uh, how does Biden stopping the Keystone pipeline affect our energy independence vis-a-vis -vis Iran's oil and gas production and export t-shirt? Um, not very much. I mean, um, it's pretty obvious that the Biden administration policy is uh, hostile to a lot of oil and gas production, but it's also hostile to a lot of oil and gas consumption. And so the net impact on U.S. energy independence is probably going to be a wash. It's like many people were saying this spring when uh, uh, because of uh, the crash in oil prices, the uh, U.S. oil production plummeted saying that, oh my gosh, there goes energy independence. Well, actually, no, uh, demand fell faster than production. And so US net exports actually increased in the spring of 2020, uh, in spite of US production dropping by 3 million barrels a day. So the Biden's set of policies of being hostile to both energy production and energy consumption may leave the United States in about the same net position that we were under a Trump administration that was supportive of both energy production and energy consumption. So just a general question, who are the main buyers of Iranian exports? Well, most Iranian exports these days are, are uh, not oil. Uh, they do export a fair amount of petrochemicals and they export um, $3 billion a year worth of iron. Uh, and most of these um, commodities go to China. What a surprise. China's got much of the world's industry and they absorb a great deal of uh, these products. But uh, Iran also sells quite a bit to, to its neighbors. So for instance, it sells quite a lot to uh, Iraq, a lot of uh, simple manufactured goods. Um, and it even sells uh, in, in uh, other markets in, in the region. and. Um, and not no, some to Europe, but let's not exaggerate it. That's not its principal market. Its principal markets are in Asia. Of course. And so to summarize, so in the end, if nothing much is going to change, why is Biden talking so much about resurrecting the JCPOA? Well, it's nothing, not much is going to change on the economy, but there's going to be quite a change on the question of the stance about the nuclear program. And there could potentially be quite a stand change in the stance of diplomatic relations between the United States and Iran. And I would hope someday even a, cha a change in the uh, Iranian approach of kidnapping uh, dual nationals or Americans and holding them for hostage. Uh, so the changes that are the Biden team wants in relations to Iran are not about the economy. 
What they want is a change in uh, particularly uh, about Iran's uh, nuclear program and reducing the risk that that program would be on the cusp uh, of uh, producing a bomb. So realistically, can the West stop Iran from succeeding in producing a nuclear weapon? And if so, what specific steps need to be taken? Well, there's good news and there's bad news. The good news is that one of the things the West can do is make it clear to the Iranians that if it looked like they were going to be on the edge of getting a bomb, uh, that um, we would not stand in the way of additional Israeli actions, such as the killing of the scientist uh, Fakhar Sadeh, who was so instrumental in Iran's nuclear program, or the explosion of Natanz. Because those would be the instruments of choice that Israel would use, not, not bomber runs. Um, so that's a relatively good news. Uh, but the relatively bad news is that over the last 10 years, especially the last five years, uh, the Iranians have concentrated on developing hyper-accurate missiles and drones that allow them to inflict very substantial damage on another country. So that the Iranians were um, able last spring, um, excuse me, last fall, to uh, attack the um, largest oil facility in the world, at um, Abqaiq in Saudi Arabia, uh, and did very impressive damage to that facility uh, in a way that people had thought would not be possible to do without a nuclear weapon. And the Israelis, especially the Israeli Defense Forces, have to fear that if Iran develops large numbers of these highly accurate missiles, what's called a precision missile project, uh, that <clears throat> Iran would be able to put Israel at existential threat by targeting the electricity system, by targeting um, the water delivery system, uh, in ways that would make life in Israel really difficult. Um, so the bad news is that the Iranians are getting good at doing all of the kind of high-tech things, and I haven't even mentioned their, their skills at hacking, uh, that um, could be the wave of the future in the military. Uh, and it's not clear that nuclear weapons are necessarily gonna be the way 20, 30 years from now uh, that countries um, hold other countries at risk. Thank you so much. And in our last minute here, can you just tell our viewers where we can find some more of your work? So I work at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy and uh, our website, Washington Institute, one great big long word, .org. We have a lot of material uh, by yours truly, uh, but also by my colleagues on whole bunches of questions about Iran. I'll be frank, uh, the economy is not our main interest, just as it's not the main interest of US policy, but you'll find a lot of things on there about, about sanctions and uh, other issues. All right, thank you so much. Unfortunately, we've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you again, Dr. Clausen, for taking time to speak with us today. Thank you for listening to me. Of course. And for our viewers, please be on the lookout for our weekly webinar offerings email coming out over the weekend. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.